Good afternoon again. If you uh, have a Bible with you, I'm going to open to Acts chapter 17. Sorry, that was my fault, Stephen. <laughs> Acts 17, uh, the famous speech of Paul at the Areopagus at Mars Hill. It's one of my favorite texts anywhere in Acts. Um, if you like the far side or not, uh, Gary Larson had a cartoon uh, several years ago now about Ernie Schwartz who for 23 years had been the curator of the reptile house at the zoo and showed Ernie lying on the floor in the reptile house, cringing to no end. And that said, after 23 years, Ernie Schwartz finally succumbed to a cumulative case of the willies. (laughs) The willies. And the willies is what I usually expect people to have when I want to talk about uh, sharing the Christian faith publicly, uh, persuading your friends to believe. It's not almost anybody's favorite subject or most comfortable subject. Uh, The good news is that the example we have before us today is an especially good example of it because um, not only do we see Paul persuading people uh, about the reliability and truthfulness of the Christian faith, uh, we see him do it in a less cringeworthy manner than we usually see. Uh, he has deep love and respect for the people that he's speaking to, and that comes out clearly in what he's saying. And so I want us to look at this, try to learn a little bit for us, what does it mean for us to be loving and respectful as we try to persuade people? Uh, and also, what does it mean for us to be persuaded ourselves of the Christian hope and message? So let me pray for us, and then we'll read the scripture. Father, please open our minds and our hearts to you. Um, People who heard your word uh, in this instance that we're reading about, some were curious, some were mocking, and some believed. And we pray that you would let us believe. We want to know you, and it's why we're here. So please speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Read with me, beginning at verse 22 of Acts 17. It says, So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we'll hear you again about this. 
And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom were also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Tom Wolfe wrote a book several years ago. Uh, now it's one of his first about uh, cities that he did. They're novels, but they're sort of journalistic novels. But the first one was called The Bonfire of the Vanities. They made a movie about it that uh, Tom Hanks and Melanie Griffith were in. and uh, It was a send-up of Manhattan. And uh, all of the uh, vanities and foibles and misplaced trust that you find in the city of Manhattan, then and now, really. He took his title from Savonarola, who in, at the end of the 1400s, was famous during Mardi Gras for hosting a bonfire of the vanities, where people would come in preparation for Lent and burn all of their vanities, their cosmetics and their playing cards and their mirrors and their books and art and plays and musical instruments. And you think, you know, some of those I could see more than others, but, you know, these were famous, the bonfire of the vanities you see it referenced pretty often ever since then. But um, Wolf took that as his title uh, because he was sending up the vanities of New York City and Manhattan. Uh, not so much for building statues and idols and having religious vanities, but having uh, ideas and pursuits and ideals and stories that tell themselves that would make their lives work without God. Like how we can make everything pretty much go uh, according to how we want it to go, with or without God. And so he mentioned a lot of different things in that book, especially you know, things like wealth and um, having the right address, prestige issues that come up, uh, sexual desirability, political influence, uh, reputation in the media, other things that seem to be uh, inordinately important in Manhattan. And it was, uh, it was kind of a mean book, really. Uh, it was well-received in New York, which is funny because um, the guy who wrote it, Tom Wolfe, is a Southerner. And when he moved to New York, he seemed to get even more Southern. You know, he was wearing white suits all the time, and his drawl got uh, deeper in Manhattan. And uh, there's a guy named Roy Blunt Jr., who you may hear sometimes on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me or something, but a Southern guy, he said he was surprised that New Yorkers liked it because he said if they understood Southerners, they would know that a Southerner will be nice to you right up to the point where he's ready to kill you. And so when Tom Wolfe writes this book that is as caustic as it is, it's not a nice book. He's not being friendly. Um, the New York Times liked it. They said this about it. It's a big, bitter, funny, carefully plotted book that grabs you by the lapels and won't let go. When the book is over, there's an odd aftertaste that's not entirely pleasant. I'm back. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's an odd aftertaste. Um, because he's pulled back the curtain in Oz and said, look, your gods are not real gods. All the things that he sends up in the book are things that people hope and trust in that fail them. Their wealth fails them. Um, their prestige fails them. Their social climbing fails them. And Wolf is disenchanting uh, all of these idols or vanities, as Savonarola would have called them. Uh, and he's doing it in print. And the aftertaste really was bitter. I, I thought it was great, though. You know, I'm from Atlanta until he wrote a book about Atlanta. <laughs> and then I didn't think it was nearly as good. Um, he started picking on us. 
Paul is doing a similar thing, though, in Athens. He's in this in the intellectual center of the world still. Rome is politically prominent at this point, but, but Athens is still the intellectual, cultural center of the world. Greek is still uh, the language of the intellectuals. Uh, this is the place where uh, is the home and base of Western philosophy and is even in the day that Paul is there preaching. And he's preaching under the shadow of the, the Parthenon as well as all of the other temples that are there in Athens. Uh, if you've ever been there, there's a plaque up where he did his uh, speech, presumably where he did his speech, in the middle of the marketplace, which is not the store. It's, the, it's more like the marketplace of ideas. Uh, it's a center of uh, government and thought, more like a university than um, like a mall. But that's where he is, and he's disenchanting them, disenchanting their idols. He's saying the things that you've trusted are not really trustworthy. He's not violent like Savonarola. He's not bitter like Tom Wolfe. He's actually very loving and respectful in the way that he speaks to them. Uh, But he is pressing home the point that the things they've trusted in are letting them down and are not to be trusted. And so I want us to look at what he said and how he said it. Uh, first, how he said it, about what is it, how do we persuade people in a way consistent with the message we have, and then, uh, and then what does it mean to be persuaded by what Paul's saying here? So firstly, persuading people. Uh, Paul is respectful for these people. He's loving to them in the way that he speaks to them. Um, his message is shaped by his message, if you know what I mean. He believes that we're rescued by God and His Son, Jesus Christ, as a gift of God's grace. Uh, Christianity is not a reward for those who are spiritually insightful. It's not a reward for those who are morally superior. It's a gift to people who have nothing. And so when he goes and speaks to people about the gospel, he doesn't assume that he's smarter than they are and he's come to, uh, to teach them to be smart like he is or that he's more moral than they are and he's come to criticize their morality and inspire them to be as moral as he is. That's not his message and so that's not his method. He's going, as someone who's received grace, to speak to people about his hope. He, he's, he doesn't have a better philosophy. He has a better hope. And it's a very different thing to say because uh, he doesn't have to win the argument or be the smartest guy in the room. Uh, He doesn't have to uh, put himself on any kind of a pedestal above them because all he's talking about is the better hope that he has, not himself being a better person. And so what he does uh, as he approaches them is that he takes time to understand them, to think about what they believe uh, he learns if he, what he doesn't already know about Epicureanism and Stoicism, the two main philosophies in the Areopagus. But as well, he looks around at all the other temples to the gods that are present there in Athens. And he doesn't just look around uh, to try to own them by pointing out how wrong they are. He actually is very appreciative and he's looking for common ground. He's looking for things he can agree with them about. And things that he can acknowledge. So he learns their poetry. He quotes their poetry here. Even a poem to Zeus. When it said the, the, in verse 28, we are indeed his offspring. That's a quote from a poem written to Zeus. And Paul's able to say, you know, what, what you're apprehending here is true. We are all God's offspring. Um, there's more to know about it than maybe you know. But, but he's able to look at their stuff not just to have gotcha moments to say, I see where you're wrong here, 
but actually respectfully to listen and to understand why they believe what they believe, which isn't always our approach, I would say. Um, It's weird to look for places where you agree, but it's right and loving to look for places where you agree. Um, When he says, you know, the God who made everything doesn't live in temples made by hands, the Epicureans and Stoics would have both agreed with him about that. So he's got common ground. He's saying, yeah, of course God doesn't live in temples made by hands. Uh, it's, the, it's the superstitious people that believe that. That's why they're in the Areopagus. They don't buy into that. But uh, Paul finds points of common ground with them, which we can do with people as well. Um, and the reason we can is because everybody that we know lives in God's world as God's creature, just like we do. And everybody we know is broken in the same ways that we're broken. And um, everybody has human capacities that God's given them like he's given us. And so when we're talking to our friends who aren't Christians who disagree with us about pretty substantial, significant things, we're not talking to aliens. We're talking to people who are mostly just like us and uh, who may be smarter than us, who may be more moral than us, but with whom we have much in common. And so it should give ground for us to be able to have these kind of conversations but Paul takes the time not just to give, him, give his presentation. He speaks to their ideas. He's taking the time to understand what they believe and, and to know that. And so when he speaks, he, he gears what he says towards uh, what their issues would be, which is a very loving thing to do, very respectful. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who's a famous apologist uh, and Christian, lived in, he was American, but he lived in Switzerland through the middle of the last century, Someone asked him one day if he had 60 minutes on an airplane to speak to somebody about the hope he has as a Christian. You know, how would he go about presenting the hope to them? And he said pretty famously now, uh, I'd spend about 55 minutes if I could asking them questions and listening to what they believe and how they approach the world. And then in the last five minutes, I'd try to think of something I could say uh, that maybe speaks into their life and their beliefs. Um, If you're not a Christian, I'm guessing that if you've had experience with other Christians telling you about the faith, that ratio of 55 minutes to five minutes isn't what you experienced. I'm sorry. Um, But because that's that reminds me of Paul in this situation, respectful and loving and thinking about things. He doesn't pull his punches. I mean, he he winds up pulling the curtain back on the Wizard of Oz and saying, look, this isn't these aren't real gods. And there are things here that you're missing. Um, but he does it kindly. But when he pulls back the curtain, he does. He says, uh, I saw this uh, statue in your temples to the unknown God, which is kind of a tacit description of the failure of the pantheon uh, at some point uh, in a point of great nervousness and danger from an earthquake or something. I forget the exact circumstances, but uh, they had been warned that there was a God they didn't even know about yet, along with all the others who was offended. And so they built this temple to the unknown God, hoping to appease him. So uh, the pantheon isn't what it purports to be. The gods that you have feared and served are not true gods. Uh, There is a true God. It's different from this. But he says, um, what you worship as something unknown, I proclaim to you in truth. So he's not just dialoguing with them. And hearing their interesting ideas, he is speaking to them about the hope that he has and persuading them about the hope that he has. Um, 
So the Parthenon, he says, with the big statue of Athena in it, with the, the gold spear that can be seen, they said, from 40 miles away, right up on top of the hill in the middle of Athens, you know, and uh, then all the temples to every named planet <laughs> that you have after that, as well as Apollo and Bacchus and uh, all the other gods represented in Greece. Paul's saying, look, I, these things are not real. These things are not real gods. So before we talk a little bit more about his, his message there, just let me just ask you if you're willing with your friends to enter in to their lives and their beliefs as Paul was willing to do that in Athens. Are you willing to read their books or listen to their music or watch their movies um, just because it interests them, because they find it persuasive to find common ground, um, to listen, um, to read books about the things that they struggle with with the Christian faith? You know, if you have a friend who's really troubled by the relationship between science and faith, you're willing to read up on that, to read what they read that has caused them confusion? Are you willing to take the time for that? Is a pretty challenging question. When I was in seminary, we had a professor who had a class on apologetics for us, persuading other people to believe, and he gave us an assignment. And he said, uh, I want you to uh, write me a paper about one of your friend's beliefs. One of your friends who's not a Christian, uh, what do they believe and what are their objections about Christianity? I don't want you to answer the objections. I just want you to write a paper about what they believe. And uh, you know what the problem was for all of us in the assignment? We didn't know any non-Christians. <laughs> Not friends. We knew people. But we didn't have anybody whose beliefs we knew. And it was, uh, it was very telling for all of us. Pretty embarrassing, uh, but very telling also. That um, there's a breakdown at some point of love if you're not willing to share your life with people just because they don't share your beliefs. It's certainly not the way Jesus has treated us or modeled for us in the world. He's been willing to enter into our lives before we were Christians and sends us with hope into the lives of our friends. And uh, I think most of you would say in your experience that when you've done that, it's been very delightful and enriching for you. Uh, sometimes, sometimes it's harder than others, but... It's a pretty fun part of being a Christian, to be able to talk about the hope that we have. So learn to ask good questions, learn to lovingly challenge without people feeling attacked. I'm hoping to learn that one day. Um, but what do you run into in Tucson? You know, kind of questions. You, people will talk about, they'll, they'll express mystical ideas about spirituality pretty commonly here. Just ask, why, why? tell me how you've come to think that. Somebody starts talking about thin places or minerals, that seems like a pretty good, interesting place to talk and have conversation. Or someone's expressing moral indignation about something they see in the world, that's a great place to follow up with a question. What, what makes you indignant about that? Uh, where do you get this strong sense of morality? I mean, that, I don't know, places to talk that people mention are just people who've come here to be comfortable and, uh, and enjoy the amenities. Uh, the unexamined life. Uh, but people, if, you know, if they know you love them, we want to talk to you about the sense they make of their lives. So persuading people according to the message with love and respect is the first part. And then the message itself that Paul talks about is informative for all of us, believers or not, because he's talking about idolatry. Uh, he's talking about false gods or substitute gods versus the real God. 
and making the case for us to worship the real God. He starts out by saying, I see that you're very religious in every respect. And uh, I think the people in the Areopagus would have said, yeah, well, not like a lot of these uh, hicks, you know. I mean, they're very religious and very superstitious. We're, we're running on a little higher plane here. I wouldn't just lump us in with the hoi polloi, you know. But, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the Epicureans and Stoics were religious. Um, but everybody is. You know, biblically speaking, everybody's religious. You don't have to be a part of a uh, church or a synagogue or a cult of any sort. Um, if you have a story that explains life... To you, it says this is what life is about. This is what a human being is. Uh, this is why I'm here. This is what's wrong with the world. This is what needs to happen to fix it. Uh, this is what's worth pursuing in the world. If you have answers to those questions at all, you have a religion. You have a, a worldview, a belief system uh, that you use to rely on to get you through life. And in that sense, you're religious. Everyone is religious. There are things that you trust, things that you serve, uh, things to whom you to whom or to which you appeal for help, and those things uh, are innately religious sentiments. Um, I'll take, for instance, a poor example, but the dream of a perfect body. Um, this is a pretty strong one in our culture these days. Uh, if you have the dream of the perfect body being perfectly healthy, perfectly fit, perfectly beautiful. You meditate on this ideal, and you think about how your life would be if you could uh, drop 15 pounds or if you could get really fit. Uh, it's a dream that you think, I wonder um, what I could do that would enhance my efforts to have the perfect body. Right? Uh, maybe if I hired a trainer or joined an a exercise group, and we envision our body, and we meditate by worrying about what happens if I get injured or what happens if I'm uh, stuck in a sedentary job and can't exercise as much as I want. It's meditation on the good life, meditation on what we think will save and help us. And then we make sacrifices for these gods that will help us. We give our money uh, to exercise machinery or gym memberships. We give away our sleep. We give away our time. We give away our dessert so that we can have the perfect body, right? We make sacrifices for the sake of the blessings and the good life that our idols promise us. We proselytize if we find a great diet or a great exercise program. The uh, conundrum is if someone is a vegan and goes to Orange Theory, which do they talk about first, right? <laughs> you know, because... They talk about it because they're excited about it. They proselytize. They talk about their hope. Now, nothing wrong with trying to have a better body and exercise and eating well and those kind of things. It's a good creation, your body. It's just a bad God. It doesn't work well as an idol. But anything, anytime you trust something with trust that really only uh, God can bear then you're making a substitute for God and creating an idol, just like on top of the Parthenon, just like in the uh, social climbing hearts of the Manhattanites, uh, just like in the pleasure-seeking hearts of the Tucsonans. Um, you're making an idol. We're all religious. And whatever you pick that's finite, that you put your weight down on, ultimately won't be able to bear it. If the perfect body is your hope, 
Well, you're going to lose eventually to gravity and age, right? Someone said gravity and age are undefeated. And so all of us with our hopes of body perfection and shaping are fighting a losing battle. Ultimately, those gods will let you down. But if your hope is in success in the academy or other career pursuits, if your hope is in sports or your hope is just in having a great family, um, then these things will let you down. If you get them, you'll be disappointed. And if you don't get them and you fail these gods, you won't be forgiven. Because these gods are not able to be God. They are finite things. And Paul is trying to point that out to the people he's speaking to. Another example, Don Draper. Did you watch Mad Men? I didn't. I just heard. Um, I watched Mad Men, but don't come to me and say, I recommended something to you in a sermon. I didn't recommend it. I just mentioned it. I alluded to it. I didn't recommend it. That's my disclaimer. So watch Mad Men. Don Draper is, it's a story about a man in despair, right? In utter despair, the opening credits are of him diving off of a building to end his life in shadow form. And, uh, and his life is perfect. He's an ad exec in, in Manhattan in the 60s, and everything goes right for him. He succeeds in everything he tries, in business, in uh, love, everything he tries. He does well. He's beautiful. The world's his oyster, and he's in utter despair and doesn't understand that or doesn't know how to change it. And you get seven seasons, and then there was a half season after that in which they kind of tried to fix Don Draper, and it showed him doing yoga in California. I was thinking... Eh. Is yoga going to fix Don Draper? I, I don't think it's going to fix Don Draper, right? It's yoga. It's fine. You can stretch. But yoga's not going to fix Don Draper. Well, Paul, Paul comes in this way. He pulls, pulls back the curtain and says, look, these, these gods are not gods, really. And he addresses what they believe. The Stoics, who were pantheists, and they believed, well... Gosh, we live in a place where we know of all these different religions and all these different gods. So either they're all kind of true or they're all equally not true or something. But they responded to pluralism the way a lot of our friends do and uh, said, well, I don't know. It's either a lot or none, but I'll be respectful and say it's a lot of gods. Uh, And Paul comes in and he says, uh, the living God who created heaven and earth. Uh, and appointed the boundaries for where people live. There's one creator who created from one man everyone on earth. There's one real God, one true and living God, which is very challenging to them. After he'd said, look, I understand like you that God doesn't live in temples made by hands, but there is one true God. And he pressed them. And then the Epicureans, who were more deistic and thought that God is there, he's, he's distant from us. And so Life doesn't really involve us dealing with God very much. It deals with us having, making the best life we can here. Um, they were hedonists, but not in, the, not in the tawdry form. Hedonists in the looking for the good life. They were Epicurean, uh, as we use their name now. Uh, looking for the best things in life. Uh, they sought wisdom and they sought a refined pleasure and these kind of things. And Paul says to them, look, God is not far away. He's near to every one of us if we'll just reach out and grope for him to find him. And so he presses them and he, and he says to them, really, he says, look, you, you haven't known God through all of your philosophy and through all of your religious uh, experiences. Um, but you kind of do know God. <laughs> 
there's something in you that's resonating with the world as it really is because you're creatures in God's world. And so there are things that are going on in your life that are hints to you, that are indicators for you that there is a real God to know and serve and worship. You're longing for meaning in life. Your sense of eternity, your sense that this life can't be all that there is, or your sense that you're made for a world different than this one, that works differently than this one. Your experience of beauty, which feels like way more than a biochemical accident and just a, a, a matter of random chemical reactions in your brain. Beauty feels more substantial and real than that. A belief that human beings have a unique dignity and rights uh, that's based on something. Where do you base the idea that human beings have unique rights and dignity? Um, do you get that from an accidental universe? Why? When the thing that has gotten us as far as we've gotten is power asserting itself. And now you say we should become sentimental and talk about human rights. Where does that desire for human rights come from? Where's your conviction about it come from? What's it based on? Where does your moral indignation and your moral imagination come from? How do you account for it? And so he's pressing them to say, look, you have these sentiments religiously that are right sentiments. You just haven't known the true God, but you can. You've been humming God's tune in his world as his creature, but you haven't known the words to the song. And that's what I'm here to talk to you about. It's basically what Paul says to them. And so what he gives them is not a better or superior philosophical argument in the philosophical marketplace. He gives them a better person. He says, I don't have a perfect argument if you have a perfect person. It's Jesus Christ. It's the one whom God has sent to fix his world. He's the one who's appointed to be the judge of the world, not just in the sense of condemning, but in the sense of setting right, flourishing, fixing what's broken in the world. And God has given proof of this by the inescapable reality of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And then he stops. He tells them that Jesus is the true living God that they've been looking for. But then he stops, partly because they started guffawing when he started talking about the resurrection. And a lot of people began to mock him. But what he really said, you know, let go, let go of your man-made trusts. Whether it's statues and creeds or whether it's just some story you have of the good life and how you're going to be happy in it. To let go of these things and put your trust in the true and living God. That's a call to us. That's a call to our friends. It's called, Paul says, to all men everywhere. To repent. To turn away from your man-made gods and to turn to the true and living God. And that's what we're called to do. So, for a lot of us, that first involves dragging our old gods out into the light and really looking at them and seeing, are these things able to, to bear the weight of my life or not? Is romantic love really going to make me happy if I finally meet the right person? Is that really going to make me happy? Is, is tenure and success in my career really going to make me happy? If I'm able to retire earlier than my friends, is that really going to be me stepping on the gas of the good life and having the best life ever or not? Or not. Because when you drag these things out, see, they, they mostly can't hold your weight. Now, you, you may hear that, look at it, and scoff like a lot of people here did. You may be too smart for this. You may be too cool for this. Um, I don't know how to help you with that. You may be too vested in your other story about what's going to make you happy. I'd just say test it. 
doubt your doubts. You know, the things that make you say Christianity can't be true, but my story is true. Maybe write down on two sides of a piece of paper why you believe that. Some of you may be curious. If you are, I'd encourage you to talk to your friend who brought you today or, or uh, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about this. Come back and kick the tires more of the Christian faith. Some of you may be like Dionysius and Damaris who are uh, ready to put your faith in the true and living God, to put your hope in Jesus. And if you are, definitely come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. If you're already a Christian, been a Christian a long time maybe, uh, look at this and realize that God loves and cares for and can give us hope to absolutely anybody. And take the challenge to invest yourself in your friend's life with deep love and respect and hope that Jesus will invade their lives with the hope he's invaded yours. Now let's pray.